What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein, of our reporter. We are here today with two very special guests in a timely manner. One of those special guests is my partner, Murad Hussein. Murad, welcome into the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having us. And Murad's good friend, client, and the firm client has been in the news lately, Andrew McCabe. Andrew, welcome into TMT Time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you about a week after the news went public of the settlement with the government to talk about you, what's happened, what we did with you, what Murad worked with you on. And we're just really here to hear your full side of the story. So, Andrew, if you would, for our listeners who may not know and been living under a rock, would you just introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your background? Sure, sure. Happy to do it. So, um, so I... Uh, I started in the FBI in 1996. Actually, prior to that, I was uh, I'd gone to law school at WashU and Washington University in St. Louis, and had been practicing in uh, just in private practice for a couple of years while I was waiting for my FBI application to go through. And I was uh, admitted into the bureau and hired in 1996. I worked as a, what we call in the FBI, a first office agent. So my first office was New York City, where I did organized crime work, um, actually exclusively Russian organized crime work. Um, New York has so much organized crime that you can be very specific in which part of the organized crime you work as an FBI agent in New York. And um, I worked kind of chasing Russian gangsters around Brooklyn and Queens for uh, many years. I ended up as the as the supervisor of that squad. So I really spent the first half of my career in the Bureau uh, doing criminal work in New York. Um, in 2006, I moved, uh, was promoted and moved down to, um, to start working out of headquarters in Washington. And there I did really national security work mostly for the rest of my career. Started out in counterterrorism and did, you know, had a bunch of different jobs in counterterrorism, was very fortunate eventually to run the FBI's counterterrorism program um, for a few years during the oh, such, you know, kind of uh, attacks like the Boston Marathon bombing and the um, attack on our special mission compound in Benghazi, Libya. So I uh, had the opportunity to work with great teams to try to uh, sort through some some really tough uh, terrorist attacks and crisis situations. Um, and ultimately, I, I finished my career in the Bureau as the deputy director. I served as deputy director from February of 2016 until the time I left the Bureau in January of 2018, and of course, left under... Uh, somewhat complicated circumstances that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into a, a little bit more as we go. Well, th thanks for that, Andrew. And I love the couple of things you said there. One, you went to Wash U, where basically everyone in my family other than me went. Uh, so it's good shout out to the university that often doesn't get a lot of uh, national publicity, a great school, uh, especially for law school as well. And the FBI, because as someone growing up reading a lot of Hardy Boy books and spy novels and someone who probably wishes that I had gone in the FBI, uh, thank you for your service to the country, for the FBI uh, offline. Hopefully I get to hear more uh, sort of non-confidential, publicly available information <laughs> from you about what it's really like to work at the Bureau. Um, but we are obviously here, me on this podcast, appreciate everything that you've done. So let's get into a little bit about what you said in terms of the circumstances under which you left. We've all read the news. We've seen some of the stories but I really want to hear what it was like, because for those of you that don't know, Andrew was sort of unceremoniously dismissed from the FBI within hours of, of retaining uh, a very deserved and hard-earned pension. You know, that's what you get when you work for the government and you and you give service, public service for so long. Um, tell us what, what that was like, how it happened, sort of your initial reactions and, and what you did. Sure. Yeah. So my entire term as deputy director was, was um, there were so many things going on. Uh, it was a very stressful time uh, in the bureau and not, uh, you know, for 
many, many reasons. The one that most people think of is, of course, the 2016 election, kind of leading into that election. Uh, as I came back, I had been running the FBI's Washington field office before I came back in February 2016. Um, so the Bureau had been investigating Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. So it was a high profile case that everybody knew we were working and it brought a lot of attention and pressure on the organization as we tried to sort through what we were learning and also to kind of come up with um, a way to credibly kind of announce our findings to uh, to the world. And that, of course, led to all sorts of controversial things. So it's it was a tough time uh, to be there. In the midst of that, we were also keeping our eye on the Russians, right? That's what the FBI does. Um, Russia being one of our most uh, aggressive and perennial um, adversaries on the world stage. We saw a lot of very concerning Russian activity, cyber activity, kind of the theft of, uh, you know, invading uh, political and academic institutions and stealing uh, all sorts of data. And then, of course, we saw them do that with at the uh, the DNC um, and then re to release that data on the eve of the Democratic National Convention um, in a way designed, clearly designed to negatively impact uh, Clinton's prospects as she ran uh, for the for president. So we kind of, through our normal counterintelligence work and our normal cyber work, we stepped into realizing that the Russian government might be trying to infiltrate or influence our democratic process. Um, and that's ultimately how we opened up the case investigating the Trump campaign. So um, you know, that's a long way of saying things only got crazier. Um, then, of course, after the election, um, as we rolled into the beginning of 2017, um, Trump fired Jim Comey, and I began serving as acting director. Um, I'd been under attack from the president uh, since about October of 2016. He latched on to um, false stories about um, me and about my wife and the fact that she had years earlier run for um, political office in the state of Virginia. And so we became kind of a, um, a constant, um, you know, laugh line, as it were, at his political rallies. And so things were, you know, it was um, as tough as things were at work, it was immeasurably harder to kind of keep your head down and stay focused on the very important work that we were doing while I was essentially getting trolled by the president of the United States on Twitter and his rallies and things like that. Um, and then of course he won the election and we found ourselves in the, in the situation that we normally do at the Bureau of trying to figure out a relationship with the new administration, right? We, the FBI is the perennial figure in, in DC. We don't have a lot of, we only have one politically appointed person, the director, and the rest of us are there to work, you know, for most of us for our entire careers. And so we, adapt to change and you know we're kind of a constant as as administrations come and go we we stay the same people uh, continue to work with the new group so we tried to do that but the um attacks on me personally continued uh through 2017 um to the point where by the end of 2017 in december um you know the president had demanded my firing several times then started to say things like he tweeted out on December 23rd that he was basically racing me to my retirement, um, which was pretty terrifying. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like as a as a as a civil servant, you know, nobody does this work to get rich. I think it's the greatest work in the world. I love my time in the FBI. I treasure it to this day. Um, but I didn't do it to become a household name or to or certainly not to get rich. But part of that deal of working for the federal government is you you do it with the knowledge that when your service is done, if you've reached the, you know, the appropriate age and time and service, you will uh, earn um, a pension, a nice pension that helps you kind of, you know, move into retirement and take care, continue to take care of your family. So the idea that the president of the United States was like racing to somehow deny me the pension that I had earned over, over 20 years of service with, with the FBI was uh, really, um, really unnerving. Um, so anyway, that's kind of what led up to the, um, conflict in January, um, 
where, you know, essentially I, I, I can go into, I don't know how I've been talking for like 20 minutes here, but, um, I haven't interrupted the, you because I'm riveted by the story. Um, so Andrew, you can feel free to keep going and then we'll sort of jump in afterwards. Okay. That sounds good. So, um, as far as part, it's hard to sort this mess out in my head as I go. But as part of it, um, the inspector general had begun in um, investigating in the beginning of 2016, begin, begun investigating our performance, the FBI's decisions in the Hillary Clinton case. And then in the fall of 2017, um, I was noticed that they were, they had decided to also investigate me for, um, for potentially uh, kind of conflict of interest sort of issues and some, you know, uh, uh, making comments or I can't remember exactly how the notice was phrased, but in any case, it was all kind of mashed together in this massive investigation of me and director Comey and really the folks who were, um, a part of the Clinton, uh, investigation. So at some point, um, in December of 2017, the investigation of me was suddenly and surprisingly split off from the larger effort that the IG was engaged in. And we learned that there was, um, some pressure to get that investigation done very, very quickly. Um, so we roll into January and one night, it was actually a Sunday afternoon. I was driving home from visiting my son who was away at school. And I received an email from director Christopher Ray, FBI director, Christopher Ray. And he said, I need to speak to you about something very important. So I need you to meet me in the office tonight. I can tell you getting summoned into the director's office on a Sunday night is not a typical thing. Um, and I, so I was really worried that all of these kind of clouds that had been gathering over me and the harassment um, and the attacks from the president on Twitter and his rallies and the things that I had heard other people saying um, people who worked in the white house and were telling me about things that they had heard about negative things that the president and other people in the White House were saying about me. So I started to really get concerned. And anyway, I went in and met with Director Ray that night and he informed me that he had seen a draft of an inspector general's report and that uh, he could not let me continue to serve as deputy director. And I told him I was not, um, there was no other equivalent job for me in the FBI. And I was not willing to step away from my responsibilities unless I knew, you know, what was, what was the cause? What was the reason? Why would, you know, anything else that I did in the Bureau would essentially be a demotion. And I didn't feel like I had, I deserved a demotion for any reason. And he would not, you know, I asked and he said, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what I've seen. I can't tell you what it says. I can't tell you what I've heard. Um, you're just not, I have to remove you from, from your job. And what I would like to do, he suggested that, uh, he would either just unceremoniously remove me from my position and move my office to, you know, somewhere in the basement, um, or that I could get on a video teleconference with him the next day with all of the heads of our FBI field offices. And I could tell them that I was voluntarily stepping aside because the director and I agreed that it would be best for me to start transitioning to uh, someone who would become deputy after I retired. I Everybody knew that I, my intention was to retire in March when I turned 50 on March 18th. Um, and so he wanted my decision that Sunday night. And I said, I wasn't really prepared to give him a decision. I needed to talk to some people and um, talk to counsel and my wife. And um, so the next day I came in and said to him, I'm not doing it. Um, I refused to lie to the people who were my field commanders who had been reporting to me for two years. I wasn't going to get on some made up civets and tell them something that wasn't true. And he was upset by that. 
um, but insisted that I could no longer serve. So I said, well, I'll leave then. And I went on essentially vacation um, until I could reach my retirement date on March 18th. I literally had to pack up, pick up my bag and, and walk out of the office that Monday morning. And I did. Um, and I crossed my fingers and hoped and prayed to God that I could make it to March 18th before something terrible happened. And of course, um, you know, I didn't make it. <laughs> I made it about 24 hours short. All right. I'm going to try and unpack a little bit about what you just said, but thank you, first of all, for your honesty and telling us that, because uh, obviously that given the impact on you and your family, that must've been a Shortly difficult and playing out in the in the public arena, which I would imagine prior to maybe what 2016, you had never thought you would your name would appear anywhere in a newspaper, or even in the president's mouth or anywhere. Um, like that's the work of a civil servant in, in public service, and especially at the FBI, you are almost by definition behind the scenes, making sure that the rest of us that's are right. safe. Yeah, um, that's right. That's absolutely right. You know, no one goes into it to get famous. Like if you're known as an FBI agent, it's probably not for a good reason, right? Um, we are suspicious private people by nature as I am. And so like the idea that you would be, you be, you become the news story is just kind of revolting. And I remember that Monday I got in my car and just driving home at like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, which that was the first time I'd ever driven home at that time of day, I can promise you. And, um, I was listening to like the news in the car and it was just nonstop reports. The FBI, you know, the deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe has left his position and, and is gone. And, you know, I, I just was, um, it was just so horrifying. It was so embarrassing. And um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, when, you, when you're in the bureau, bureau's like a lot of other places, right? You spend a lot of time going to retirement parties, right? You see all your colleagues and your friends and stuff for decades, right? You're, you you have these, you know, you all gather in the conference room. There's a cake and stuff and people yeah. get up and make your speeches. And, and you see it all the time, yeah. right? And like whoever's retiring, like they're usually they'll bring their wife and sometimes their kids. And it's just like wonderful, right? It's just like the most normal kind of um everybody just feels so good for the person moving on. So you can't help but go to those retirement parties for years and years. You always wonder like, Oh, what's it going to be like when it's, you know, when it's my time to go and, you know, I hope my parents are still around. I would bring them and things like, so I'd had all those thoughts just like everybody else for many years. And like, here I was like alone in my car, uh, driving home. Um, just realizing like, that's never going to happen. I mean, it just was the whole thing was so disorienting and um, just horrible. Yeah, it was really horrible. And you had reached. I remember this, it like it was yesterday. I mean, I I don't I don't doubt it because you had reached a point within the bureau of leadership, and that's what you worked for your whole career. All of us really, at some point, want to be in in charge of something or get to a leadership position where they can have a positive influence on those around them. And you had reached that. And you had reached that this time period that you were talking about where there was a lot of strife and a lot of turmoil within the Bureau and you have to balance, I'm at a career pinnacle, but then all this stuff is going on and then the, just the dam breaks and all of this stuff comes out and then you're in your car at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there... It, <laughs> at the end of the day, like you make decisions in jobs like that because of your knowledge of the law, your knowledge of the facts, you're trying to make um, effective principled judgments um, that are necessary to carry out the mission, right? You pledge an oath to the constitution. You, you are in it heart and soul to do the job, to make sure that the right thing is done, to make sure that Americans are protected and the Constitution is upheld, right? That's the mission of the FBI. And um, in that moment, like realizing that those decisions and agree with them or disagree with them, how we made our decisions, what we decided to do, like you might, you could have, you know, you could have reasonable discussions about like, well, you did this, maybe you should have thought about doing that. That's fine. But to realize, to have become a political casualty 
because I did my job in the best way that I knew how, and the best way that I thought was right for America um, was just like, uh, I never, ever in 21 years, never thought that it could, it could end that way, but sure enough, it did, you know, that's how it worked out. Yeah. Really the only thing between chaos and organized society is the rule of law isn't having institutions like the FBI in place, being apolitical, disconnected from the day-to-day across-the-aisle strife, that we expect that. And I mean, I don't want to personally ever hear about the FBI, but I want them to be there doing their job That's well right. and, and, and making principled decisions based on what you're talking about. But what does the Constitution say? Am I upholding it? And we're making an investigation. Reasonable minds disagree. Like in my life, sure. in, in litigation, I disagree with opposing counsel all the time. Sometimes I disagree with judges, but that you agree to disagree and you agree to move forward despite of that. And you were sort of placed outside that uh, and driving home by yourself at 10 a.m. on a Monday. So it's now 2021. We are a week mm-hmm. past the publication of the settlement agreement that you've reached with the government. Uh, you got there in part because of the incredible work of our team here at Arlen Porter, and principally that's Murad Hussein is sitting with me. So I do not want to suck up all the oxygen in this room because we're being COVID safe and safely distanced in our podcast room here at AMT. So why don't you tell us how you got to Murad um, and how that engagement worked and how it flourished, and then I will let him jump in. Well, first I want to just jump in and thanks for for having us on. And I just want to make... Um, uh, some some very uh, well uh, well deserved thank yous to, to the, we have a very large team and a lot of associates who are involved uh, who are still here some who have gone to other great opportunities um, and you know, Howard Kane our, our partner Howard Kane our associates who I'll probably remember in uh, chronological order rather than alphabetical so please don't take anything from this uh, Owen Dunn Ryan White um, uh, Marissa Loya. Uh, Nora Ellingson, uh, Aloma Kasusoka. Um, I think those are the ones who are, who are here now. But uh, absolutely a team effort all around, and uh, you know, it, it was it was a, it was a pleasure to work with everyone getting to this point. So, uh, Andrew, obviously at the point at 10 a.m. driving home by yourself on that Monday. Fast forward a couple months, you were unceremoniously terminated from the FBI hours before your your pension was uh, fully kicked in. And just so our listeners are clear, we are not talking about a Goldman Sachs level golden hand parachute on the way out. We're talking government pension, right? That you've earned through public service, civil service, earning a a set salary on the the scale that's not that high, generally speaking for someone of, of your stature and all of that, which is, you know, necessary for people with family and kids just goes away. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I know you started on a process to try and get that back or get in line to get that back. And at some point you got to Arnold Porter. So let's talk about how you got to, you know, got to Arnold Porter, the team that you work with, Murad, and, and, and how it went from there. OK, so in 2019, I had a I published a book about my experiences in the FBI and was out doing some public speaking um, with the book launch. And I was fortunate to be invited back to my law school. Another shout out for Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Gave a speech there and had dinner with some folks. And it's at that dinner, I met Howard Kane. And Howard and I totally hit it off. We were just, as, as Howard does with everyone, he's like so gregarious and interesting. And so we were talking through dinner. And at the end of the night, he said, hey, you know, um, let's get together sometime in DC. So, you know, we kind of nominally planned on that, reconnected later in the week. And I came into the firm to have lunch with Howard. And so it was, he was kind of showing me around and introducing me to people. He's just so incredibly open and welcoming. And at the end of the day, I said to him, Hey, can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to kind of get my legal effort. Um, to recover my benefits and kind of restore my reputation off the ground. And I started explaining to him like the situation I was in. And immediately he was like, you know, we can help you with that. And so it was from this entirely fortuitous by chance meeting 
Howard in at WashU and the fact that he is so generous and um, just such a great person that that's how I got introduced to Arnold and Porter. And it was shortly after that, maybe even that same day, Murad, I think um, we spoke and, uh, and I got to, you know, I got connected with Murad as kind of the, you know, the quarterback on this team and the rest of the team, just such incredibly smart, dedicated um, people. It was just such a great experience. I mean, Nora and Owen and and Ryan and everybody else in the rest of the team. It's just been, um, it was, I can't say enough positive about it. And literally like meeting Howard and meeting Murad, I got, I have to say like it changed my life. The fact that um, mine and my family's future, um, we had the good sense to put that into Murad and Howard's hands. Um, that's, that's why we are where we are today. So that's incredible. So Murad, why don't you tell us after you met Andrew, like, why did you want to take this case on? Why did it interest you? Uh, what about it made you feel like this was something that you wanted to do? Yeah, I think I had fr first uh, realized we had a touch point with this case. So I think when I saw the conflict check go around and obviously I'd followed it in real time. And I think like so many people around the country was just so fundamentally disturbed by what I had seen, and I, I remember watching the news that day, actually, on, on March 16th, the Friday, 2016, and just also, I think, like Andy and his family were, you know, just hoping the clock was going to run out and, and we'd see some semblance of uh, non-vindictiveness coming out of the story that day, and alas, it wasn't to be. And so then, fast forward a year later, and I had worked on the district uh, federal court here in D.C. Uh, for a little less than two years, once upon a time. And a large portion of the cases there are uh, government workplace discrimination and, and related sort of cases. And so knowing the facts of this case, this struck me always as sort of a somewhat obvious, uh, you know, employment litigation type fact pattern. And so then between that, the obvious First Amendment connections and seeing this come across the conflict check, I said, I want to get involved. And uh, reached out to Howard. We have our garden room tradition of uh, you know pizza every Friday and drinks and snacks every every other day. And I just I would see Howard around, and I mentioned, oh, you know, I'm really interested in helping you out with this if uh, if you need some help. And we had our first meeting, and and you know the the rest uh, took off from there. But you know I, I think in addition to you know the rule of law issues that that you mentioned, uh, Evan, that um, for for me. You know the the idea of of civil servants getting attacked like this. I mean, I, I live in D.C. I, I went to law school elsewhere, but a lot of my friends are also here. They're all, you know, lot, not all, but a lot are in the civil service. I mean, uh, you know, my wife once upon a time had been a uh, a DOJ intern during her first summer at law school, and then uh, as a for her second summer was also a, a, a summer honors program, uh, and then was applying for a, a permanent job. Um, or maybe it was for the summer job, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that summer, as people might remember, um, summer of 2008, I think it was, there was a big report from the Office of Inspector General about the politicization about hiring at DOJ. And uh, lo and behold, when that little report came out, I mean, she was one of the people who had been targeted by the politicized hiring process. There's a little squib about her. And, and you know, a part of the ostensible reason that was given for deselecting her from hiring was that as part of her essay and 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 uh, you know why you want to work at DOJ, you know unlike in private practice where you have a client, you zealously advocate for them, but ultimately your client's interests are your client's interests usually in a, in a private context. But she was proud of the fact that her client would be the United States, so she would have the 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 happy uh, 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 overlap where she could not just think of what's best for her client, but also what's best for the country. And that was the very pretextual line that was cited by the person who was criticizing this report for why he invoked that. Well, I thought, well, you know, you're, you're just a GOJ attorney. You shouldn't be thinking about what's best for your country. And I remember hearing that, um, the first the initial news and knowing what had happened to her before this report had come out. I remember driving to a summer associate event. I used to work in the LA office 
Um, I used to do IP litigation, so there's our little overlap there, I guess. That's our TMT connection for any yeah. listeners that are wondering, <laughs> why is this on the TMT I used to be a time? digital copyright <laughs> infringement lawyer with the great Ron Johnston yeah. and Sean Morris and Jim Blackburn out in LA. So, uh, But I remember driving to a summer associate event, and I, I knew what was going on with my wife and presumably others, and I heard then the news break of the, I think, some wider politicization stories that summer. I remember just gripping the steering wheel so tightly, just thinking about how this was affecting you know, me uh, and not just, you know, a wider political story, but you know, my wife and just just my family and just. Ha and so, you know, remembering a little bit about that. And I, I actually don't recall Andy, if we've ever talked about this, but I remember as with all my all my client work, I'm obviously I'm, I'm representing a client. But for me, it's always about, you know, the client in this context of their family and the people around them, not just the person who's immediately affected, but the people who are indirectly and very just painfully affected. And so, you know, for me, the fact that Jill and the kids are going through this just as much as he is, and, and you know, that really sort of resonated for me. And so I thought this is ridiculous and we got to get, you know, do what we can to, to, to bring this uh, to uh, a proper conclusion. So tell us what you did and the team did uh, first, I assume obviously there was a lawsuit filed. Um, you, it was an employment lawsuit. Is that what you said? So, when you take away all the personalities and the politics and the uh, the headlines, I mean, at its core, it was a wrongful termination suit brought under a particular provision of law. Here it was the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment and Fifth Amendments. But you know, Andrew McCabe was a career civil servant. He could only be fired for cause, and that's not exactly. What happened because even though there were certain pretextual reasons given for his firing, as we alleged, the firing itself was really for other reasons. And we spell that all out in the complaint, but ultimately, uh, at, at its core, uh, it resembles a lot of uh, employment lawsuits. So it, does it move forward like a traditional civil litigation where there's the answer and then there's discovery and depositions and, and you try and build your case through summary judgment and then you ultimately a trial? Is that how it works? Yeah, like with any you know, civil suit, you know, we filed it here in D.C. and, and um, initially the government or whoever the defendant is will have an opportunity either to answer or try to kick the case out of court with some sort of uh, series of legal arguments. And, and that's that's what happened here. They filed a motion uh, about two months or so, two, three months after we filed suit. But what was sort of unusual was normally, um, and I'll, I'll try to uh, defer to our non-attorney audience out there, often what happens early in a case is uh, the defendant will try to kick the case out of court by um, what's called a motion to dismiss under certain rules that say you have to assume everything in the complaint is true, but for whatever reason, all you, uh, even those true allegations don't add up to into an actual legal claim that, that that that's valid. So that's normally what happens. But they didn't just make that argument. Um, for the First Amendment argument, for the idea that as a civil servant, you cannot be dismissed on the basis of patronage, uh, on political affiliation or perceived political affiliation. Um, they didn't move to dismiss that because I think they basically recognized that what we had put in the complaint was in fact, if it was all true, a very valid legal claim. But instead, they move for discover, uh, move for summary judgment, which is a different procedural attack, before any discovery, before any facts were actually in the case. And summary judgment is the sort of thing you only do after depositions and document exchanges and uh, all of that. And so they move before discovery. And so we responded and we said to the uh, the court, um, not only do we in fact state a real legal claim as to the other arguments, but as this First Amendment stuff, this is all just too early. And that's not how any of this is supposed to work. And this is you know, not proper. So we, we moved, uh, we, we opposed that motion. And then we sort of had a couple other paper fights in between here and there with legal, additional legal briefs. And then the judge decided in September 2020, we were right. Uh, he denied the government's motion in its entirety and let discovery open up. And then we started negotiating with the other side about um, you know, uh, the parameters of what we would want, what they would want from us in terms of documents, in terms of witnesses, in terms of uh, questions and answers that you, you the, the paper chase of discovery, the, the more boring nuts and bolts that- uh, the, the fun stuff The of stuff you I never do. see on Law and Order, basically. <laughs> right. That's right. The law and Order, you see the case filed, and then all of a sudden we're in trial. Let's fast forward and forget <laughs> about everything in the middle. <laughs> dun, dun, right? right. But, but actually uh, tying it back to something Andy was saying about you know some of those tweets is that um, you know it's often been commented that um, 
jokingly or not, that I mean, a lot of the tweets were made for very easy legal claims. I, mean, I don't think it was necessarily an easy legal claim because of the tweets, but I do think that you know, one in particular, you know, when you when you do this particular litigation as a clerk, you, you tend to pick up some of the themes. And one of the themes is that if you don't really have any other evidence that an employee has been retaliated against or otherwise discriminated against, um, or sorry, just retaliation is really the, the, the thing I'm thinking of. Um, but if they were fired within three months of uh, some uh, protected activity, uh, such as complaining about discrimination or, um, you know, maybe a, a political protest outside of work or something like that. And if there's a about a three within three month connection, then that's basically enough to get past this motion to dismiss, uh, even if you don't have any other allegations about anything else that went wrong. Well, the the infamous um, 90 days until retirement, racing the clock tweet was about 84 days from the time of the final announcement uh, um, uh, against Andy. And so, I mean, even just on the face of that, <laughs> uh, when I saw that, I, I calculated the math and said, this is a pretty slam dunk sort of argument, uh, even if we didn't have everything else under the sun. And so um, uh, I think, you know, it was just really a question of time before we got into discovery and really sort of started forcing them to confront what had happened, what their witnesses were going to say, and whether they really wanted to go through with having those people on the record under oath, uh, you know, talking about these events. So, Andrew, what's going on with you and your family during this time period, the so-called fast forward from case filed to all of a sudden we're in trial law and order, the, the blow by? I mean, obviously, you know, you're affected. You don't have the pension. You're sort of, you know, out there, hung out there to dry. How's it going with you and on your end? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. It's really tough for a variety of reasons. Um, the very public way that the government fired me and kind of orchestrated the whole thing to make a media event out of it on that, um, on that Friday night in March, um, really, you know, it made kind of, um, pursuing the career that I'd always intended to pursue kind of impossible, right? It's when you're that kind of controversial and, and um, you know, you've been kind of openly vilified by the, by the current administration, you know, private companies are, I think typically a little, a little wary to get involved with you just because they, they don't like that sort of attention. Um, so that had been a challenge. I was very lucky to secure the, um, the role I currently have on CNN. And so I was able to kind of keep some things going and, and keep my voice out there, which is important. Um, but at the same time that the, the um, Justice Department had opened a criminal investigation of me based on the uh, flawed and uh and deeply unfair and incorrect attorney generals, or I'm sorry, inspector generals report. Um, so while all this is going on and trying to kind of pursue our relief through the civil suit, we were also defending um, uh, our, we're defending me through the course of a criminal investigation. Um, so the pressure from all these things kind of happening at the same time, the, the, the many different ways that any one of them could work out really badly, um, it just is, it puts an enormous amount of stress on you. Um, and on, not just on me, as Murad said, my, my wife and my children um, were really right there on the front line kind of having to live through every one of these like really bad developments uh, every time something else, you know, discouraging and, and negative happened. So fortunately in February of 2020, um, the government announced that they had dropped the criminal investigation without, of course, ever taking any action. I was never charged with a crime. I never committed a crime. So that's, that's appropriate. Um, so there were, you know, there were a couple highlights like that, but it's been a very, um, a very trying time for my family. I mean, it, it, uh... Probably the most terrifying thing to me is not being able to provide for my family. And, you know, I imagine, Andrew, like you you went into the FBI and your family is my dad's an FBI agent, he works for the FBI. It's it's never never expected to see my dad not being able to go in the grocery store because he's on the front page of the Washington Post and he's being all these things are being said about him and you're faced with not being able to provide for your family. I mean, I that had to have been terrifying and I I empathize with you significantly, and I know a lot of us do. 
So once the criminal investigation goes away, it's it's basically, you know, go forward on the civil case to try and retain the pension benefits. So Murad, what happened after you like got into this discovery process? The court denies summary judgment in September 2020. How do you get to where we got, you know, October 2021, where, you know, a settlement gets announced? So September 2020, the judge denies the government's motion. A month later, we're in front of the judge, I think telephonically because of COVID, um, putting forth our sense of what the schedule should be, what the scope of discovery should be, and then we're off to the races. And I think right after the conference, we, both sides, within I think a few minutes of each other, exchanged their first set of discovery requests. Um, and then, of course, there was the election and the transition, and so we actually had some paper fights that we couldn't resolve and negotiate among the two sides. And we took to the judge regarding making sure that records were being maintained by people in the White House, for example. Um, because as, as a, we now are hearing again how there's a, a transition process and th certain things are shunted over to the, the National Archives. And so we wanted to make sure that things have been preserved and if things were being shunted away to the archives that we knew what it was and, and where it was going. So we had a small fight about that. It was a little bit anticlimactic. Um, and then we, you know, we kept negotiating with the other side about various issues as one does in discovery. And there were certain issues we couldn't resolve. And we took those ultimately in front of the court uh, on what's called a motion to compel, where we were asking the judge to order the other side to produce certain documents. And it was a number of documents uh, from uh, the Office of Inspector General about various of the investigations that had happened in 2017 and, and a few other aspects of uh, DOJ and FBI. And ultimately at the end of the hearing, this was in March, 2021, uh, the judge, granted our motion in most respects and in respect to a few other pieces just said we'll keep negotiating and narrow the scope um, but he uh, ordered the other side uh, orally at least from the bench to produce a number of materials including materials from the office of inspector general and so without getting into the particulars of negotiation and settlement things like that i mean it's just it's obvious from the public docket that it, it was March was this hearing, and then April was the announcement um, to the judge on the public docket that both sides agreed to put a pause on the litigation uh, so we could explore the possibility of settlement. And so again, without getting into you know, settlement and the timeline, that was certainly the first public uh, reference to it. And did you guys get a mediator that came in to help the party try and work through it, or were there direct talks? Um, so again, don't want to get into the particulars, but you know, we, we do reference on the public docket that we were exploring the possibility of, of uh, getting a private mediator. If we couldn't do that, we would go back to the court. Uh, and so then um, you know, we, we just put that notice in. I think that was uh, June or so. And then we went forth from there. All right. So Andrew, as Mirage just said, the settlement's public. Your, your pension benefits have been reinstated. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it felt like to, to get that result and and go forward with your life knowing that, you know, this wrong has now been righted in some respect. You know, it seemed um, it seemed almost impossible that this would happen. Um, the settlement, we had managed to kind of negotiate a settlement that was so positive for me and my family. It, it really kind of delivered on everything that we were looking for. And in that way, like I see it as a total vindication. Um, you know, the relief that we demanded in the complaint is what we ended up getting, you know, essentially in the settlement. And if that's not a, an acknowledgement by the department that this should never have happened and they're trying to undo this wrong, I don't, I don't know what, what would have been. So, um, so we were, both excited about the prospect of resolving it, but then, of course, as negotiations do, it, things seem to drag on for a while. So it um, it was very stressful uh, at the end. And, you know, as Marad said, without getting into the details of, of the back and forth of negotiations, the actual, you know, final resolution last Thursday was a bit of a surprise and it was it it's it's just kind of shocking when you get make that realization that like oh my gosh this is over we've accomplished what we wanted to accomplish we got a great result here and it's done this thing that's been hanging over my head for so many years all those nights all those worries of how is this going to resolve will we ever be able to piece things back together will I ever be able to stand up in front of the world and say look uh, what I've been saying since March of 2018 is true. This should not have happened. 
it was um, wrongful, it was political. Um, that's all been kind of um, validated by the settlement. So it's just it's just an incredible realization. At the same time, it's almost so strange. It's like disorienting. I I had the same experience when they finally dropped the the baseless criminal investigation. You, you it's almost disorienting. Like you you've been living with this stress and this condition for so long, when all of a sudden it's just gone, you almost kind of don't know how to react. It takes, I've found that it takes a while to really kind of get your head around the idea and um, accept the fact that like, this is the future. This is life moving forward in a positive direction. And you can kind of put that burden down. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very kind of emotionally confusing, but boy, what a, what a huge relief. Well, look, Andrew, congratulations to you. Congratulations to Murad and the AMP team. Congratulations to the rule of law and this working out in the way that it did. Uh, I'd normally end the TMT Time podcast with some lighthearted banter. And given everything that you've been through, Andrew, I'm not going to go there. I just have one question for you, which is this sounds to me like a movie script. And if it was a movie script, Andrew, <laughs> who's going to play you in the movie about what happened here? <laughs> so um i don't know boy I'd, I'd have you know of course every guy in their 50s would want george clooney to play them i think that oh, seems like, like a pretty it. fair He's guess you know but i've got to give a shout out to my man michael kelly who played me in the the, the movie by jim comey's book i thought he did an amazing job and i think he's just a super person i got to meet him once and he's a great guy so yeah there's there's a you know average looking 50 year old dude with graying hair there's a lot of guys that fit that bill <laughs> i thought you were going to go tom cruise but but I, I like i like clooney i like it all right well andrew thank you so much for joining us today marad this was an incredible learning experience. Just appreciate the time and care that you give to this. And I, like I said, I empathize with what you and your family went through. Uh, best of luck to you going forward. Hope our paths cross again. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving us the time to tell the story. And I absolutely have to say one more time, thank you, Rod, Howard, uh, all the rest of the team and really Arnold and Porter as a firm being willing to get behind me, um, believe in me from the very beginning and to put so much time and effort and resources and intelligence and dedication and professionalism into um, seeking the best result. It's just so, so impressive. I have just such nothing but respect and, and love for all the people that I worked with and for, for the firm. You guys do amazing work. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. All right, Murad. So the settlement got announced last week and it goes public and you achieve essentially what you asked for in the complaint with the reinstatement of Andrew's benefits. How did you get there? Give us your thoughts on the result. Uh, you know, why was this important and why is this important beyond what happened just with Andrew? I think with any civil suit, when you are going up against the government, uh, I think it's important to be realistic in terms of how you present it, uh, present what you're looking for, present the remedies you're seeking. And so I think on that count, we we weren't shooting for the moon. We just wanted what Andy had earned. And we weren't trying to gild the lily in terms of uh, how the complaint read or the relief we were requesting. We just, Wanted him retired, not fired, and to get back the benefits that he would have gotten if he'd just been allowed to retire on schedule. Um, and that's what we got in the settlement. And so, uh, you know, from from my perspective, you know, certainly this is you know, this is this is a victory because it's exactly what we wanted. Um, and I think in getting there, I think there were, uh, you know, a lot of. Um, you know, risk for the other side, as you always hope will become apparent before a settlement that you know, the other side, we were in discovery. And so the other side, I don't know their thinking, but they had to make their analysis about, you know, what was the uh, risk tolerance for them. And so ultimately we, we were able to agree on the settlement. And, uh, you know, I think what this says is that even though it's, you know, over three years uh, since the original 
you know, decision against Andy that these sorts of politicizations, these sorts of um, you know, corru- attempts to corrupt the federal workforce, uh, there are going to be people who will push back. They'll first push back from the inside and they'll stand up for what's right like, like Andy did. But then even if um, you know, more needs to be done, there are people on the outside you know, who are watching, you know, all the people around the country, I mean, the, the sort of the groundswell of, um, you know, uh, I think relief uh, that you know, we, we, we've, we've seen, not just uh, you know, general comments on the internet and wherever else, but you know, people who email in who don't know us, don't know Andy, but are just very, who've been following this story for a long time and just sort of what that story said about the government and the rule of law and how things work and, and was really very demoralizing. Um, I think this suit and the resolution of it and the settlement um, shows that if people are paying attention and willing to stand up for what they believe in, that they can in fact move the ball back in the direction of where things should be going. So, um, and as far as um, you know, the other parts of the settlement, uh, you know, we we at the firm you know, believe that given our history, certainly um, with a lot of the founding members of the firm back in the, the 50s, uh, taking on the representation of a lot of government officials who were being targeted uh, improperly for their perceived political associations back during the loyalty cases of the uh, the McCarthyism period. This was something that you know has, is very much in the DNA of our firm, taking on these sorts of fights. And I think by, by one count, um, this might be more anecdotal uh, than, than than accurate, but I think the 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 count back in the day was. I think you know over half of the attorneys had all been working on those loyalty cases back then, um, or some, or maybe some impressive metric to that effect. I'm probably botching it, um, but uh, we decided that uh, this was exactly the sort of case that we wanted to take on, that we wanted to donate uh, any fees that we were awarded um, to the Arnold and Porter Foundation. So, um, uh, and that's exactly what 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 our plan is, and so. Um, you know, the, the foundation is something that's been set up by the firm, and uh, I'm sure we can put a little squib at the bottom of uh, where we post this uh, podcast and do it better justice than I can. But it's a private foundation. It gives scholarships. It uh, funds fellowships for you know law school graduates doing nonprofit work. Um, you know, awards grants to various charitable organizations. You know, a lot of work we've been doing recently in the last uh, two years um, for our various diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, uh, uh, Items that we're working on at the firm and uh, outside the firm with other organizations, you know, one entity, uh, I believe, you know, for example, a foundation sponsoring a uh, education civil rights fellowship in uh, in coordination with the National Advancement uh, uh, Project and Advancement Project National Office, I think. So, um, you know, we were very glad that we could send the fees that way. Um, you know, one of my mentors once upon a time said that uh, it's. Uh, it's good to do well for yourself, but it's also just good to, to do some good. And so you know, hopefully that's what we can do here at the firm when we take these cases on. Well, I think you have done both here, uh, Murad, both for the firm and our other clients, but especially for Andrew and his family. So I, I just want to say thank you for the work that you've done on this case. Thank you for joining TMT Time and thank you for connecting to Back to Technology, kind of. <laughs> uh, we appreciate the time you and Andrew gave us today and wish you the best of luck and hope that you know these kinds of things don't happen in the future but we all will sleep better at night knowing that there are folks like you and the team here at our own Porter to help with them um, in the event that they do come up thanks for having us <laughs>